0: Today's episode of the Theatre People podcast is brought to you by BroadwayCon 2018. Tickets are now on sale, and they are cheaper than they have ever been. You can find info and tickets at BroadwayCon.com. And stay tuned at the end of this episode for a special broadwaycon theme message from our friend Julia Murney. You guys, today's episode is also sponsored by my other podcast, Broadway Backstory. If you don't know what Broadway Backstory is, it's a documentary-style podcast in which each episode finds out how a show developed from an idea to a full production. We do this by interviewing everyone involved and getting their hilarious or heartbreaking or, you know, just like regular stories. Season 2 is launching tomorrow, Tuesday, September 19th, with two episodes about Hamilton. Now, if you think you know everything there is to know about Hamilton, I promise you, you don't. Through our interviews with literally everybody involved, including Lin-Manuel Miranda, director Tommy Cale, Alex Lacamoire, the ridiculously handsome David Corns, producers Oscar Eustace and Jeffrey Seller, and more, we are going to take you through it and find out how this thing developed from a vacation beach read to the biggest thing on the planet. This season, we're also covering Great Comet, Bonnie and Clyde, The Light in the Piazza, Bring It On, Come From Away, and Kinky Boots. You guys, I have a lot of editing to do. We did over 80 interviews for this season, and I am so, so proud of the stories we're going to tell you. Oh, and for each episode, we're going to release a few full and unedited interviews with some of the people involved, which you can find at the brand new website, todaytix.com slash Broadway Backstory. So go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you tomorrow. Welcome to the Theatre People podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Hines. Today, I am so excited to be bringing you our interview with the director who's been at the helm of some of my favorite musicals of all time, shows like Brooklyn, Bonnie and Clyde, and Newsies. I'm talking about Mr. Jeff Calhoun. You guys, at some point, you have to just go check out Jeff's IBDB page. It starts in the early 80s with him as a performer, then he becomes an associate choreographer, then a choreographer, then a director choreographer, then a producer director choreographer. This guy's career is just the stuff dreams are made of. Of course, we didn't have time to talk about everything, and he was kind enough to let me handpick the shows I wanted to talk about. Now, you guys know how I feel about Bonnie and Clyde, right? That I'm completely obsessed. I cannot believe that I got to talk to him about it for this interview and then again for the upcoming BNC episode of Broadway Backstory. I love this guy. Here's our conversation. Shall we start? Absolutely. Hi, Jeff Calhoun. Hi, <laughs> hey Patrick. How are you? I'm great. It's such a pleasure and an honor to meet you. Uh, You've directed, like, at least two of my favorite shows. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. Appreciate that. Um, I was going to start by squealing about how you directed Bonnie and Clyde, but maybe we should just wait until we get there. Okay. It's up to you. You're in charge, <laughs> you're the director in this one. <laughs> well, I wanted to really start with Newsies. So I was like the world's biggest. Newsies fan of the 92 film like I would, like little yeah. gay kid dancing around my living room I saw it in the movie theaters like obsessed with Newsies right. How, what was your did you have a lot of like did you have that sort of fandom for the movie when you came uh, in to direct it I really didn't I think it's generational I wasn't really totally. aware of the film nobody was it you was know like the my influences swap. were
1: all the Gene Kelly stuff and Fred Astaire and the earlier MGM stuff yeah I didn't know they even did a, a, a movie musical of Newsies
0: so what did you think when they handed you a script and music about well, like it a didn't, boys train. Yeah,
1: well, it didn't really work that way. What happened was uh, Tom Schumacher invited me to a reading at Disney Studios.
0: <laughs> We're being invaded. Uh, yeah,
1: we are. Uh, <laughs> uh, anything's possible right now, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, so he asked me to come to a reading, and I do remember Jeremy Jordan, even at that time, was reading uh, Jack Kelly, and uh, Harvey was in the room, and Alan and Jack, And I guess it was sort of, we were auditioning for each other, Uh and when it was over, he asked me what I thought, and of course, even at that stage, it had incredible heart, Yeah, and I told him it would be, you know, an honor to work on it, so that's really how it happened.
0: What was the, like, how long did it take from that reading until, you guys did an Out of Town in Seattle? No, 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 no. Uh, our only out of town was at Paper Mill. Oh, of course. Paper of course, Mill course. Playhouse.
1: Yeah, 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 I came to your first preview. And, oh, did you really? Because
0: remember, like, back then, they didn't know if it was going to go to Broadway? Like, it was kind of like. No, it was purely done uh, for licensing
1: purposes yeah. because apparently schools were ripping off the movie and doing their own.
0: So I mean, they... I did that when I was like 10. Did you do yeah, that? I mean, I wrote a thing, like, verbatim from the movie and, like, tried to get my friends to act it out with me.
1: Well, see, I think that must have been happening. Uh, so much that Disney realized that there was some money to be made. And so they made it very clear from the very beginning this was not a Broadway musical. This was purely to see if it worked so they would have a
0: product to license to stock an amateur. And then uh, what was the – like how did – was it just like a hit out of the gate at Paper Mill that made it be like, uh, we need to take this to Broadway?
1: Yes. There was some inevitable inertia that happened from our very first audience. Uh It was funny because the place kind of erupted. I was was you. Well, it was you and like the other hundreds of people there that that, that they went crazy, and of course, we all thought, well, every fan of Newsies came to just that performance, and that it would not happen again. And then it happened the second night, and we kept thinking it was going to peter out. That eventually, all the fans will have seen it, but that didn't happen. It just continued to um, entertain audiences and uh, exceed. All expectations. It's really been a show that has continued to exceed expectations. Yeah.
0: Can I just ask quickly, what is it like to work with Madam Harvey Firestein? Well, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> do we have enough time? Because, you know, my, my mom is gay. So I grew up like on oh, wow. Torch Song Trilogy. I remember my mom put me in front of the movie like the minute it came out on video. So I, to me, he is, I tried to talk to him once and I started to cry and I turned and walked away. Like, how, is he crazy or is he, I mean, obviously he's, he's a He's everything, genius.
1: he's a genius. He's a legend. He also changed my life. It was Torch Song trilogy wow. that actually I took my mom to and you know that was that show. Wow. And it led to The Door Opening. And so, yeah, I mean, I think early on there was a certainly a great respect, but he's such a great collaborator that uh, he immediately invited me to his beautiful home. Out in the country, and we just sat and worked. And uh, it was real honor and pleasure to work with him. You know, he's he's crazy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but good. Cra- he's good crazy. <laughs> totally. We've worked with not good crazy, but he's good crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone was, you know, Alan and Jack Feldman,
0: yeah. uh, uh,
1: Chris Catelli. It really was kind of a remarkable group of people.
0: Yeah, and I know you know you guys kept a lot of the original material and added and changed and all of that. How was it for the show? Was it like an instant alchemy or did it, was there a lot of changing and rewriting as there can be when you're putting together a new musical?
1: Oh, well, you know, writing is rewriting. Yeah. So, I mean, Harvey had all, the foundation was there. You know, he, he I think his, well, he had many strokes of brilliance, but certainly making Jack Kelly an artist yeah. and starting on the rooftop at the prologue and introducing Santa Fe. I sobbed, by the way. Cre- you know, creating Catherine as the love interest. I think those were very, very smart choices for the adaptation. But no, of course it changed. It changed a lot. Um, when we, when Tobin Ost and I came up with the, um, the set, that became another character.
0: That set is incredible. Yeah,
1: transitions were the... Uh, Mostly what Harvey helped us with the most. Chris and I needed to end scenes a certain way and to use the songs to transition us into the next scene. And we needed Harvey's uh, uh, help to finesse that.
0: Yeah. So, And then when it did ultimately come to Broadway, it was like a limited engagement initially, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, there was someone at Disney that just kept telling Tom <laughs> Schumacher... You know, is not going to work. This isn't going to work. And so even a Paper Mill, it's only going to work at Paper Mill. And then he wanted to bring it to New York, and someone kept saying, no, don't bring it to New York. And he said, I'm going to. And they said, okay, only do a few months. It's yeah. only going to work for a few months. And then those few months turned out to be a few more months, and then that turned out to be two years. And then they said there'd never be a tour, and we had a wonderfully successful national tour. And I don't think anyone could imagine that we were going to actually film it and make a feature film of our little stage show.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's so. What, how was it for you to get the group all, but because it's uh, you're you're mostly your leads, right, from the Broadway production?
1: Well, Andrew- everything was sort of serendipitous in the sense that Jeremy Jordan was available, right? You know, uh, Kara was available, um, Andrew was available, and then Chris and I got to kind of handpick sort of newsies that touched <laughs> our hearts or did the most amazing. You know, tricks in the show, and it became like the all-star version of Newsies.
0: I mean, I well, I'm dying to see it. I can't wait.
1: Yeah, I have to tell you, I saw it last weekend at uh, How is it? in Atlanta. It took me a while to be able to stop judging. You know what I mean? It was, very, course, yeah. it was very emotional. Chris and I were sitting next to each other, and um, it was very moving. Ultimately, it was incredibly moving, and there were 6,000 kids there who saw it and uh, you would have thought we were reuniting the Beatles. It was, you know, <laughs> yeah. it was beyond our wildest dreams, the reaction.
0: It's it's interesting, too, because the thing, one of the beauties of theater is that, like, it exists and then it goes away forever. And this is, like, an, a rare opportunity to preserve your great work.
1: Yeah, now I hear that it's, it's you know, it is being done more and more. Yeah. Right? Shows are, are filming their live performances. Oh, right, yeah. I think what makes this special is that uh, Disney actually closed uh, one of our weeks in uh, Los Angeles at the Pantages, and we brought in nine cameras and actually did setups for every scene. Wow. So it will look like a feature film while also kind of pulling back and seeing the proscenium shot and then the reverse angle where we see the live audience. So it's a nice hybrid of those shows you see that are filmed live and also the way you would shoot a feature film. Totally. Yeah.
0: So to go back to the beginning, you are one of the few artists working on Broadway that has this incredible – sort of trajectory of, like, starting out as a performer and then becoming a choreographer and then, like, a choreographer-director and then a director. How how did you navigate that? Well, I guess the question is, was directing always the ultimate goal or was it just sort of, like, the next job? No, I
1: think as a kid, I directed all of our, like, shows in our community and in school, so I always wanted to be a director-choreographer, for, you know, at maybe 10, but then you can't. No one's going to hire a ten-year-old director of choreographer. <laughs> and so you start at the beginning. I started as a dancer, uh, watching you know Gene Kelly and Dick Van Dyke and Donald O'Connor and Ray Bolger and Buddy Ebsen. I wanted to be those Ken Berry, yeah. Arthur Duncan from the Lawrence Welk Show. You know, I wanted to be them. I wanted to be a tap dancer. I really wanted to be Dick Van Dyke.
0: <laughs> well, who doesn't?
1: Which you know, just before we started this, uh, you know, I read that. Uh, <laughs> Mary Tyler Moore passed away like moments before we started this. So, you know, the Dick Van Dyke show changed my life. Yeah, I would put the ottoman by the door in our family room and da 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 da, and I'd walk into the room and I'd fall over, it. but but just like Dick Van Dyke yeah, would every day. But anyway, sorry to digress. No, but it's great. Just a shout out to Mary Tyler Moore, and then her show. Just you know, I'm such a was such a huge fan. Yeah, actually, when I um, took over for Tommy Toon in my one and only Mary Tyler Moore came. She didn't just come to see me, but she happened to have tickets for that performance. And for some reason, when they announced that the role of Billy Buck Chandler, usually played by Tommy Toon, would be played by me, for some reason she stayed. And when I <laughs> – she, my parents, and my grandmother, I think, are the only ones. And um, – when I heard that, I asked uh, my friend to run to my apartment. I have a picture of Mary Tyler Moore from her show on my wall because I really am a huge fan. And they ran to 38th Street at the time where I was living, brought it back to my dressing room at the St. James Theater. And when Mary came backstage afterwards, I had her sign it. So oh, that was what, a very did you still have special. That? Me- oh, of course I did. Of
0: course. Yeah, it's
1: a very special. Uh, she's. Well, I have many special memories about Mary Tyler Moore. Great inspiration. But anyway. Yeah. So I started, you know, dancing in Pittsburgh. And I was lucky enough to have a dance teacher who was also the choreographer at the Kenley Players. And they were doing Anything Goes with Ann Miller, and they had lost at the last minute one of the chorus boys. And given that my dance teacher was the choreographer, I went in and auditioned for Mr. Kenley. And it was kind of funny because uh, he asked if I sang, and I said "Yes," and I sang, and he said, "You don't sing <laughs> he, <laughs> he said, "Do you dance?" and I said, "Yes," and you know I did some dancing. he goes, "You don't dance." <laughs> he said, "Do you tap dance?" and I said, "Yes, and I tapped dance, he goes, "Okay, you can tap dance and i for some odd reason, I got that job, and How I was old were you? sixteen years old Wow, and so my first job was dancing with Dan Miller, and I just did the you know trajectory of you know chorus boy and then A show came along called uh, Seven Brides for Ah. Seven Brothers, and I got to be one of the brothers, or as Frank Rich uh, affectionately titled his review, Seven Brides for Seven Clowns.
0: (laughs) Come on, Frank.
1: And then um, Tommy Toon asked me to stand by for him in my one and only, and when he went to put together or tech out of town the national tour of nine, I got to uh, marry Twiggy and dance with Honey Cole's 16 performances. (laughs) And it was at the end of that that I realized I would probably not take the final bow of a Tony Award-winning musical <laughs> in a Tony Award-winning role <laughs> probably ever again. And so I closed the door on performing, and I went out to the West Coast, and I just uh, directed and choreographed every production of my one and only that would have me yeah. because I knew the original, obviously, Broadway, of choreography, and direction. So they wanted me to cre- recreate that up and down the coast of uh, California, Wow. And that was really my foot into directing and choreographing. And unfortunately, at that time, AIDS was really...
0: Decimating the community. Oh, I mean, we,
1: you know, you were just throwing out your address book, literally, because there, there were more people that were no longer with us than you could call on the phone. And so uh, Alan Carr... Hired me to do a couple, an AIDS benefit that was very successful to Dorothy Chandler. It was actually the first AIDS benefit uh, west of the Mississippi River. And Michael Bennett had just passed away. And we got the entire original company of Chorus Line and the original costumes uh, from the public theater that they wore on Broadway. And we did a tribute to Michael Bennett. We got the original Dream Girls, wow. and I called up uh, at that time Tommy Toon I had also met at Kenley Players. He was the show after uh, Anything Goes with Ann Miller, and we became very close friends. And so I, you know, we we pulled every favor we could to to, to put on this benefit. Bob Hope was the MC. Jay Leno was a guest. Um, at the time, it was a Surgeon General Coop, if you remember yeah, of him. Course. And uh, Bob Hope had just said something disparaging about the gay community in San Francisco, like, a, a month before this. So this was his way of sort of redemption. Uh-huh. That's how we got him. Anyway.
0: Saver Coop, I remember, there's a famous scene in and The Band Played On where he pulls Reagan into a coat closet and says, you have to talk about AIDS.
1: He was fantastic. Yeah. He was, he was like our savior at the time. He yeah. was remarkable. And that went really well. And then there was something at the Hollywood Bowl called Broadway at the Bowl. Uh, it was going to introduce Placido Domingo and Gloria Estefan were the second act. And the first act was sort of a variety show of Broadway stars. And I once again called my friends that I had met. And Tommy Toon came out and Sandy Duncan and B. Arthur and Wow, Mary Martin. And we just had these stars. And it was also kind of a a sensation. And that really kind of launched sort of, I guess my name in los angeles and i started just getting little shows little equity waiver shows and tommy toon would fly out and see all the shows and after a couple years he said i think you're ready i have a show called the will rogers follies and i would like you to come and help me with the choreography and that really was that was sort of my audition for the big time
0: katie huffman was the first guest of this podcast oh you're kidding yeah she was a She's amazing, which we had this long talk about, you know, because she was doing Lacage back during, like, the AIDS crisis on Broadway, and how, you know, that was, like, the first conversation we ever had on this podcast. Um, And uh, what was I going to say? So, from there, you you sort of were, like, an assistant or an associate choreographer, and you just sort of climbed the ranks.
1: Yeah, I did climb the ranks. That was – right after that was um, Greece. Right, of course. The Weissers actually wanted Tommy Toon to direct that, and Tommy was not necessarily – in the movie. A fan, <laughs> let's just say at that point of a career of doing the revival of Greece on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, Listen, I have his protege and um you know, if he gets into trouble, I'll be there. So not to worry. And the Weissers agreed. And that was my Broadway debut as a director. Wow. Unfortunately, you know, that ran four years and was a success. But that kind of, it was the Will Rogers Follies that really launched it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So your career is too varied to talk about everything. Can we cherry pick my fan, my favorites?
1: Sure. Your two favorite shows? Well. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a very short interview. No, I no, mean. I'm kidding.
0: I want to, well, first we have to talk about Big River. Because before we started talking, we were saying how I do another podcast called Broadway Backstory. And we did this whole exercise Exploration of um, the Deaf West production of Spring Awakening Oh, Wasn't it brilliant Oh my god I mean In going through that episode I was wa- re-watch, You know I had seen it on Broadway A couple times But I was re-watching the, the, the videos of it From the various appearance, Appearances that they had And after interviewing Everybody involved With the production I, I understood What I was seeing In a, mm. in a different way mm-hmm. And of course I had a long conversation With Michael Arden Who was your star In Big River Yeah he
1: was Tom Sawyer And it changed a lot of our lives Yeah All of our lives actually
0: How did you get involved with Deaf West?
1: I got a phone call from this guy named uh, Bill O'Brien, yeah. who at the time was working at Deaf West. Yep. And I had directed him in a production of the Will Rogers Follies in Sacramento. Wow. And of course, the whole stage at the Palace Theater was a staircase. We did the whole show on a staircase. And in Sacramento, it was in the round, in the old days, before air conditioning. And and there was no staircase. And um, I guess Bill O'Brien was impressed that I could figure out how to tell that story without a staircase. (laughs) So when it came time for Deaf West uh, to decide to do a musical, he called me. And, uh, you know, he said, would you like to come and do a musical at Deaf West? There's only two requirements. One is it has to be um, Oliver. And number two is half the cast has to be deaf. And I really, you know, I thought he was stoned. (laughs) I mean, I really did. I can't believe my arrogance because I really thought he was kidding because I couldn't imagine how you could do a musical where half the cast was deaf. Right. and
0: I came to understand in the process of making that episode that like deaf in that, that translates into really not understanding what music is.
1: Right? It forces us to see music.
0: Yeah, exactly. Talking about the, th- the third dimension of music being the sign language.
1: Absolutely. It, it, and it is perceived as a ballet. Yeah, uh, right. You know, it's, uh, I mean, I loved it. it. It could be the highlight, and it may, may always be the highlight of my life, was working with Deaf West because we went from Oliver to Big River, and uh, we did Pippin as well out yeah, in California, of and we did an original musical called Sleeping Beauty Wakes. Yep. And so, working with the deaf has really been the highlight of my career thus far. And also, it made me a better storyteller.
0: Right? You, I would imagine, then sort of invented that the way that they do most of their shows, which is the the, the doubling of the characters. Would you Would you say that that's true?
1: All of us did that. I mean, that was certainly the first time it was done because up until then the interpreters were standing on the side right. of the stage. So the, the deaf audience would miss the show because their heads would be turned to the far extreme right or left of the proscenium. Yeah. So I think what we did was we put the signing where the deaf person was supposed to watch for the narrative to work. Right. And what's tricky about that is in the deaf theater, you can't split focus. Because you can't have two things happening at the same time. You can only focus on one place. Oh, right. So that became like passing the hot potato. You became the camera and moving the focus around the stage where you needed the audience to see.
0: Did you necessarily, in your doubling, do what they did with The Spring Awakening, which was to make the – like Michael Arden's counterpart, who was signing what he was singing and saying. Was that another dimension of that character or was that an interpreter?
1: We wanted it to be different for everybody. Uh We didn't want to do the same rules. We wanted to create a rule and then break it. Yeah. So, in other words, uh, Pap was told you couldn't have Pap unless you had two actors one was deaf and one was hearing. And the way we introduced him was an image in the mirror. Right. You know, but however, there weren't two Hucks, there was only one Huck, Mm -hmm. but it was Mark Twain the real voice of Huck, who actually voiced for Huck. Uh So uh I tried to have, and then sometimes someone in the ensemble would voice for one of the principals, so I wanted to change it up. I didn't want us to get bored with the same concept all night.
0: Yeah, that is so, and then how, What was Broadway always on the horizon for for that show?
1: Oh God, no. No, we were in a 99-seat theater on Lancashire Boulevard.
0: Yeah. Is Uh, that the one on Skid Row where they still do their work?
1: Well, I didn't know it's called Skid Row. Well, that's <laughs> I don't
0: even know what Skid Row I, is, but well, all that's called Little it
1: that. Shop of Horrors. I think. No, that? we just called it Lancashire, and now it's called Soho. I think. So, okay, okay. There, no, what's it called? NoHo, North of Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. Call it. yeah, Um It was a great area, actually, but um, no, it was a small little ninety-seat theater. And the first time I saw the show, I had that flop sweat yeah. because no one, there was no reaction, there was no noise, no clapping. And then the, the Ed Waterstreet, the artistic director of Deaf West, explained to me it's because the audience was deaf. Yeah. Well, that's how naive I was. <laughs> I didn't put that together until the first audience that saw Oliver.
0: <laughs> totally. Hey, you guys. My pals Mo and Nika over at the Ensemblist Podcast are launching their next season on October 1st, and they're going to tell us a little bit about it right now.
2: Oh, um- Oh, no, I don't know if we're in the right place. Nico Graff-Lanzarone, why are you on this podcast? Mo Brady, why are you on this podcast? This what? isn't your podcast. Oh, right. We're the hosts of the Ensemblist I, podcast. Yeah, I know we're the hosts of the Ensemblist podcast. So why are we on this podcast? Well, we just thought that maybe some other nice friends who listen to this podcast would also want to listen to the Ensemblist podcast. Oh, right, because we're just starting our new season. Yeah. Broadway at every stage. Yes. Yeah. Right. And we're interviewing those six awesome, th- awesome humans. Alma Cuervo and Anne Harada and Kevin Carolyn Dina Alexander John Eric Parker and Bob Stillman wow those are six
0: amazing actors
2: I know that's why we that's why we emailed them all yeah
0: they should probably find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they listen to podcasts yeah we're there yeah this podcast is good too though yeah no we love yeah, we love you this podcast you should listen to this yeah
2: yeah yeah, yeah like yeah. after you're done listening to this episode of this podcast just like take a little thumb wander on your phone yeah both window.
0: So then when you guys came to Broadway, you guys got a special Tony Award. We did. And uh, I mean, that you guys, it was Roundabout that brought you guys to Broadway, right?
1: It was Roundabout. It was actually, it, it's really funny because, uh, see, that just goes to show you never know this business that's so precarious and arbitrary how things happen. Yeah. There wasn't a master plan. I was at the opening night of a show called Sweet Smell of Success. Yeah. Right? Christopher Whelan, beautiful choreography. Right. It was just... John Lithgow, right? John Lithgow was in that. Uh, Brian Darcy, I think. Brian, maybe, or and no. Am I the, making that up?
0: I don't remember. Who was the woman in that? I can't remember. Oh, God,
1: well, no, yeah. But anyway, out. the point is, so we were after we were the big opening night, and afterwards we were at the party, and I'm talking to Frank Rich at this time. And this was after he did reviews, so we liked him. Right. <laughs> and he was asking what I was doing, and I said, oh, I just finished doing this interesting project in California where half the cast was deaf, and he goes, are you talking about The Big River? And I said, yes. And he said, just a minute. He goes, Rocco, and he calls across the room and brings Rocco Landisman over and says, Jeff's the one who directed that show we were talking about, The Revival of Big River. And that is how the next day Rocco had me in his office with Ed Waterstreet. And the deal was done. Are you kidding? Yeah. Me? Had that? Had we all not been at that party at that moment, wow. the show probably never would have come to New York.
0: And just a non sequitur: Are do reviewers usually go to the opening night party?
1: Well, no. But he was done reviewing at this point. Oh, this was—he was already doing his political commentary. Yeah. you know.
0: Um. Okay. So the next show we have to talk about is, of course, Brooklyn. Once upon a time, I
2: believe in. It. Upon a time. I believe that love will conquer all. Once
0: upon a time. Oh. Which I think I saw 25 times. Wow. Like I was that was the first show probably after rent. I didn't live in New York for rent, but it was the first show that I lived in New York where I remember you could get like $25 rush tickets or whatever and sit in the front row. And that show blew my mind for a million reasons. How did that show come to you?
1: Uh, a friend of mine, Scott Priceand, who is one of the producers on Rock of Ages, uh, just I don't know how he found me, to be honest with you, but I found myself in Central Park with this crazy, insane man <laughs> named Mark Schoenfeld with a boombox on a park bench doing the whole show for me. He would press the button, the music would play, and he would rap the whole show. And I was intrigued. I thought it was remarkable. I still to this day think the score is remarkable. Incredible. Eden Espinoza was oh my remarkable. God. Karen. Karen Olivo. Olivo I, was remarkable. I know, I the know. whole cast was really Incredible. special. Uh, looking Ramona back,
0: Keller.
1: Ramona, well, could she sing? You know, oh, my she God. Was, you yeah. Know, Anyway, <laughs> I, I'm biting my tongue on some of these things. But anyway, <laughs> you know, we were all young yeah, yeah, at yeah, the yeah. time. But looking back in retrospect, as good as the score was, and I really should have listened to Jack O'Brien, who at the time I brought him this piece, and I said, I've got to play you this music. And he said, well, let me read the script first. He said, never judge a show by the score. Oh. Always read the book first. Yeah. And looking back, obviously, the book was extremely weak. Yeah, and um, I guess you know when that you're hurts young. My
0: heart. I think it was good, Jeff Calhoun.
1: Yeah, well, you have to be careful because I was still young enough to think if you if you can do a show, you should do a show, and just because you can get something done doesn't necessarily mean you should do it.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: But that was part of my journey as a director. I got seduced by this remarkable score and it was a chance for me to exercise my imagination and Tobin and I had a field day figuring I mean, out how to turn garbage bags into dresses and
0: those uh, costumes are they're well, legendary. We talk about them on this podcast all the anytime we have the opportunity to talk about uh, the costumes in Brooklyn we well, talk about it. Tobin
1: is a genius yeah. and a very good friend and we just it was, you know, tried to tell a spotlight with just a piece of material cut in a forced perspective beam going from a short to a larger triangle yeah. and pulled taut. and
0: I mean, it, that was incredible. And like I think about the angel wings made out of coat hangers.
1: Well, and, and it didn't become the wings until we actually closed the gates, right. which formed perfectly behind Karen to create the... You know, it was just a great exercise in imagination. Yeah. And what was heartbreaking is rather than... You know, just say that great material, great amount, I mean, great score, great imagination with not such a great book. Yeah. People chose to not talk about anything uh, the critics didn't really see anything <laughs> redeeming, <laughs> redeeming yeah, yeah, in that yeah, yeah. and you know I thought it was a great exercise in imagination and beautiful music but that's not enough and yeah look and I know that
0: now I mean that show gave us Eden Espinosa I mean I know Absolutely. she was in wicked before as the standby and well whatever. but
1: not what was what happened was John McDaniel uh, who was our musical director and co-producer at the time with myself we were in California actually auditioning people at Mary Lou Henry we didn't have any money we we're producing oh, this right. so I called Mary Lou, who was a friend because she did Anna Get Your Gun on the Road. Uh-huh. And we we said, can we use your house for auditions? Because she had a piano. <laughs> and Eden Espinosa, Eden showed up and she was in, I think she was doing Spider-Man at Universal she Studios. Was. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so we'd hired her then. Now, there was, uh, there was a time difference between we did the show in... Denver, and before it came to Broadway. And during that time, she got wicked. wicked.
0: Right, right, right. So. Yep. How? Do, what was it like to hear, was Once Upon a Time written when you guys were auditioning her? Yes. What was it like to hear her sing that for the first time?
1: Just, it's one of those moments that um, Lily Tomlin talks about in, in Search. You know, you get yeah. that goosebump moment. Yeah. Where just the hair is on the back of your neck raise and you never forget it
0: did you did it have that big high belting and note then or did was that tailored to her
1: you know i think that's something that she and john worked out you know during the process yeah do you
0: remember um auditioning karen olivo who i'm so obsessed with i should probably go to jail
1: one of the most talented and as nice as she is talented which is just you know so great yeah um yeah i remember i remember the whole company very well it was a it was a great time for all of us. Like I said, we were all young.
0: Yeah. We, when so when the reviews came out and they weren't favorable, what? How? I'm always curious how as a director, how do you? Is your job done and you're gone, or are you back and you're like, do you try to take care of your cast as best you can? Or well, what do you do?
1: It was hard because I was wearing two hats, which I'll never do again. Yeah, and yeah. I should have known that reading Hal Prince's books, who tells you you can't do that, and I should have listened. Um, and so once we got bad reviews as the producer, we were trying to keep the show going. So it actually got, it it, it became contentious, and I have to say it's heartbreaking when I look back on it because there was some contention between the cast and myself because as the producer, I wanted them to try things on stage like tell them that the author's in the back of the house signing autographs and Uh as a curtain speech after the show. And I think as actors, they were offended that the show we wouldn't let the show just speak for itself, that we were trying to do tricks to try to keep the show running. And so I feel bad that there was sort of a, a misunderstanding there. It was certainly not a director-cast situation. It was a producer-cast situation. Got it. And so there was a lot of friction there at the end, and it was, it was painful, I think, for all of us, because um, we were wearing our hearts and our emotions on our sleeve. And I think the closing of that show is difficult for all of us
0: and it, but it's not like it opened and closed. I feel like it ran for like nine months or something didn't we
1: it? tried we you know we did everything we possibly could, yeah, you know literally the composer and the writer was standing in the back of the house. he'd go to the t k s booth and and beg people to come see us. We did everything we can. I think we were standing on the street long before now, you know they're passing out flyers, yeah to, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. think we created that we out of desperation, yeah.
0: <laughs> Um, you US also recorded like this incredible live cast album.
1: It was fantastic. So that was re- that's all just that's John McDaniel and his genius. Yeah, you know we had, like I said, we had all great great people at an early time in their careers. You know, living the dream. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But it's a great recording. To this day, I think it holds up. I haven't heard it it for a while, but does it?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I listen to Once Upon a Time like once a day, like still, and it's been more than 10 years.
1: Well, sometimes it's funny because, you know, if I'm doing a show in Korea or in the UK or it doesn't matter where, inadvertently, at some point, someone comes in, a young lady and sings that song. Wow. And what's interesting is they have no idea that I was involved at all. Can they do it? Can they sing it? Yeah. Really? Yeah.
0: I asked even that, and she was like, yeah, other people can sing it other than me. And I was like, I just can't imagine it.
1: I mean, a lot of people can't sing it. But, you know, it's like you know, acting now, I mean, it's like the Olympics. You know, every four years we break records, totally. amazing records that yeah. we think will last forever. Well, Newsies is the perfect example of that. Kids just dance better than we could years ago. Totally. They can turn faster, jump higher.
0: And now you have to be a triple threat. It,
1: absolutely. And so I mean that's a long way of just saying yes there are now a lot of great talented people that can hit that note
0: That's unbelievable But it
1: did it did also you know, jettisoned a lot of great actors from the audition process.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. You know,
1: so John McDaniel was a little perverse that way. Yeah. He did the, he did the same thing for us with Sandy in the revival of the Greece. Very, you know, he did that in that one song. He'd put in that one crazy <laughs> note. Um, luckily Sutton could do it when she played the role, but very few women could hit that note too at the time.
0: God, did she have a funny story with that? Did she, was she, I know that she was like discovered in Millie, but was she, not, well, is that not true? Tell me the story. No,
1: I mean, it just feels so – I don't mean to – No, no, it no. sounds so self-serving, but um, we talked earlier about the Will Rogers Follies. Yeah. So uh, when they, they decided to do a national tour, so Tommy Toon sent um, Phil Osterman and myself, he was the associate director and I was the associate choreographer, to do like a 32-city search for talent for our girls for the road. Wow. And I was in Detroit, and in walks this very tall girl wow. wearing shorts and flip-flops, and she was fantastic. And we hired her, and her name happened to be Sutton Foster.
0: Wow.
1: So, um,
0: what was she doing auditioning in shorts and flip-flops? I,
1: you know what? That's exactly what I asked myself. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't Some people can break the rules, right? Totally. When you're When you're born to be a star, you can break the rules. But she toured for us in that, and she was such a phenom, and we loved her so much that I put her into Greece. Was she was in the this? ensemble in uh, Greece, but then she took over for Sandy and played wow. Sandy. Which was funny because she was like Lucille Ball playing Sandy. Yeah, she's so funny; she can't totally. help herself. She's an innate comedian.
0: I feel like Hunter was in that show too. Wasn't Hunter
1: that? was yeah. He sang Mooney. He was Roger.
0: Wow, and they overlapped. Is that crazy? Yeah, they did
1: overlap for a while. That's so crazy. And then from there, she did Millie, and of course, the rest, the rest is history. And then the year after she won the Tony, Marissa Winokur, yeah, was also in Greece. Um, uh, won the Tony Award for Hairspray the following year. Wow! So we had a lot of amazing people in that in that show. That is
0: amazing. It's so amazing to meet directors like you that just have an eye. Like you can just tell when you meet somebody that they're going to be a star.
1: It's it's really just good fortune to be in the room when they happen to be there. Yeah. But I would say I only have two God given talents and one is tap dancing <laughs> and the other is I'm I'm a good judge of character. Yeah. Everything else is, you know, very blue-collar work. But those <laughs> those two things for some reason do come naturally for me.
0: Um can we talk about Bonnie and Clyde now for like five days? Oh I love Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> I loved Bonnie and Clyde so much. Thanks to you, Bonnie, babe. I can make plans again. I got lots of reasons to keep living. It's true that love can set you free, and this world will remember me. You said you'd go straight, Clyde. I want to be in movies. I can't name one movie star who's doing robberies on the side. I know in my heart, baby, that Hollywood is calling How can I be in the spotlight? We always there was something about. The opening moments of that show, when the car comes forward and they're dead, that's what happens, right? Yeah, that's exactly what happens. I mean, that was incredible. Mm. That was such an incredible way to start a show. How, okay, so how did the show come to be? How did the show come to you? Well,
1: uh, Frank Wildhorn and I became buddies. And uh, we wanted to do a show together. And Frank kept giving me music to listen to and over the course of you know nine months, nothing really, you know, I didn't feel I, I didn't really connect to anything. Uh-huh. Until he gave me three songs from Bonnie and Clyde. There was no show. There were just these song cycles, and these songs were amazing. And I immediately said, Frank, I found the show I want us to collaborate on. And I took those songs to a friend, Ivan Menchel, in California. And I didn't. I said, I'm coming out. I want you to do a show. I'm not going to tell you anything about it. And I went in his living room, and I, he still knew nothing about it. And I played the music for him, and he went, oh, my God, what is this? And I said, it's from a musical we want you to write called Bonnie and Clyde.
0: Wow. And I
1: don't know. Let me see if I can get this right. And he immediately, his first reaction was, I can't do it. I can write Jews on a shopping spree. I can't write goyams on a shooting spree. <laughs> And I said, because you could say that line that fast is why you can do anything you want. <laughs> and, um, and we that began the beginning of a wonderful two year journey.
0: I know you had a couple of Clydes, I think, before you got to Broadway. Is that right?
1: No, we only had um, Stark Sands. Stark, right. And then Stark, uh, Stark did it for us in La Jolla. Yeah. And then he got American he, Idiot oh, American, when we were supposed to go, when we went to um, Sarasota at the Oslo Theater and that's when Jeremy came aboard.
0: And did was what, what was Jeremy's like resume like at that time? Was he He was
1: wrong? the he was an understudy or the matinee Tony in West Side Story? Oh. So he hadn't both he and Laura um I believe that Bonnie and Clyde was the debut of them creating original characters in a new musical,
0: yes, 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 yeah. I, I have to ask you about Laura because she's such a good friend of the podcast. She was our third ever guest. We've done two live shows with her. She's been I just love her so much. And I'm curious to know how she is. is she she seems she to is so smart.
1: she's Cinderella. She really is the modern day Cinderella. Yeah, there's. Uh, There's nothing but superlatives that I think anyone that knows Laura will say about Laura as well as her husband Nate. Yeah, yeah. They're this beautiful sort of like the prince and princess of a Disney movie, personified <laughs> right. in flesh and blood. They're they're I just love them both very much. And Jeremy, I love Jeremy too. Cut from a different cloth yeah. than Laura, which is what made it so interesting and sexy on stage, but um I love them both. I was very fortunate to work with both of them.
0: She has said in interviews on this show that it was the first time she felt strong enough or, or uh, brave enough to sort of like bring her ideas into the room? Do you have mem- – me- like not a specific memory, but like do you have a recollection of that being the case?
1: Well, I hope that's true in all my shows. You know, My number one rule from day one is best idea wins. Yeah. And so when I hire people, I try to hire people that will be incur- – and encourage them to contribute – Because you're going to get better. My dad taught me that from a young age. You're going to get better results if you include everyone than if you just try to dictate things. Yeah. Right? I want things, I want ideas to be better than the ones that I have at every moment. Mm -hmm. Right? Why limit it to just my imagination? Yeah. So, um, I mean, you have to discern, obviously. (laughs) But I I do like to create an energy that people feel nurtured and brave enough to offer a mistake and brave enough. You know, we, we create a room where you can fail. Yeah. You know and still be supported.
0: And did you do your actors try things that don't work? I mean I'm so interested oh by God, the process. Oh my yes. Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Uh, of course you try many things until you hit the right thing.
0: The other actress I wanted to ask you about f- from that production, uh, what is her name?
1: Melissa. Yep.
0: Yep. She she was not nominated for a Tony award, am I right? She
1: no, she was not, which was heartbreaking. She was nominated for the Drama Desk, the Drama Desk award and it was a great it, it was a stunning performance, incredible. And she's one of the um, one of my favorite actresses.
0: She is her. I mean, her songs in that show. Her, I mean, she was in, She was so memorable to me. We, my husband and I, still talk about her as one of our favorite performances we've ever seen.
1: Uh, rarely have I met anyone that could make you laugh and then ten seconds later make you cry. Yeah, she's that um, versatile she's remarkable i just saw her last saturday night she was doing an act with dan jenkins speaking of who was our mark twain in big river she
0: was in big river with you too wasn't she she was yeah Uh,
1: she's one of those actresses you know you have a sort of a stable of people in your mind the stable in your mind of when you get a show you go to certain people and go is there anything for them for them for them for them and she's certainly high on that list
0: yeah that was another show that like didn't last very long right
1: bonnie and Clyde. yeah no it didn't it yeah. was so great yeah the re- again you know the, the critics were very dismissive of um frank
0: why is that why are critics uh, so dismissive patrick of him?
1: you know it's a rough i don't know how do i know that i mean he's a wonderful guy he's like my older brother he would give you the shirt off his back yeah he has a huge career in asia oh yeah um
0: it's almost as though there's there's an opposition to catchy music. You know what I mean? Like there
1: has to be. More. I don't know. The, I I don't really yeah. know the answer to that, Patrick. But you know what? Yeah. It, it felt like the reviews were written before they even came in. Mm-hmm.
0: Was there a lot of changes that were made in previews, or were you guys pretty set when you when you got to New York?
1: We were pretty set in the sense that it was our third incarnation incarnation of the show. Yeah, and I find for me it usually does take three. To get something to be, you know, yeah. as good as you can make it. Yeah. Of course, that's a silly thing to say because every time I go back to see a show, I want to change something and make it better. <laughs> that and that's sort of the blessing and the curse of doing live theater.
0: What is your overarching advice for, pe- for, for young people coming up into the theater now? You've had such a varied career where you've gotten to do so many different things. What do you say to kids when they're just like t- dipping their toes in the water?
1: Well, I say, first of all, you only you only do this if there's nothing else that will make you happy um, because you have to sacrifice so much. And you have to love it because you're not – chances are you're not going to get rich doing it. Yeah. So it's something you have to feel like just the process of doing it makes you rich um, inside. And if there's anything else in the world they can do, I encourage them to do that. Because it's tricky, you have to. The goal, I think, is to have a thick enough skin that you can survive, but not so thick that you can't have emotion penetrate it. Yeah. And it's a really it's a balancing act, mm-hmm. you know. So that's what I would say. And the other advice I like to give young people is to, I call it immediate foresight. Try to handle every situation in the moment the way you want to remember having handled it.
0: Uh huh. Is there, a, is there um, a key to longevity?
1: Not dying, <laughs> <laughs> picking yourself up after you read the reviews. Uh-huh. It really is just being tenacious and persistent. And uh, like I said, there's, uh, though I think it's in your DNA. Yeah. You're born to create. And so no matter what doors close, you're going to just keep knocking yeah. until yeah. one's open. You know, I, we're just, I don't know, I feel like we're misfits. And sort of like joining the circus, right? You join show business where you feel comfortable and where you fit in with other misfits. And together you try to take that sensitivity that you've accumulated and entertain people or make the world a better place.
0: Yeah. That's all I have for you, Jeff Calhoun. Is there anything else you want to tell us?
1: No, Patrick. You're just great. Your energy is fantastic. And (laughs) you know so much about show business. Well,
0: mostly your (laughs) career because you did everything I love.
1: What, is, what do you have coming up? Well, right now, there are actually two novels that we're turning into musicals. Wow. One, one is um, a novel by Jody Picoult yeah. called Between the Lines. Wow. And we're going to be doing our inaugural production of that at Kansas City Rep in the fall. And Daryl Roth is producing that.
2: Wow. And
1: I've acquired the rights to a wonderful novel called um, Last Days of Summer by Steve Kluger. Oh. It was a New York Times bestseller about 10 years ago. It's a beautiful story. And Jason Howland and I have the rights, and he's written a great score. And Steve, who wrote the novel, also is writing the book. Wow. And we just finished it a week ago and are about to shop it around. It's very exciting.
0: That is so cool. Yeah, Entrepreneurial. That is the best. You have to be. Right. Right? You yeah. have to be. Thanks, Jeff Calhoun.
1: My pleasure, Patrick. Thank you. Okay, bye.
0: Hey, you guys. Patrick here. BroadwayCon 2018 is coming up January 26th to the 28th. I cannot wait. I'm obsessed. Last year, Alice Ripley walked around the convention in yellow Tweety Bird slippers. If that's not an indication that BroadwayCon is a place where you get to do you, I really don't know what is. You guys, our friend Julia Murney sent us a voice memo about her favorite memory from BroadwayCon last year.
2: And here it is. Hey, it's Julia Murney. And here is my favorite thing about being at Broadway Con last year. Besides the fact that I got to do some interesting panels, besides the fact that over this past year at many other places people have said i met you at broadway con it was walking around the floor and seeing all the people dressed up as their favorite characters from shows there was a corner where there was a piano and it was basically an open mic and but it wasn't solos just everybody was singing every song that came up they all knew the lyrics and they were all singing along and i got to stand behind them none of them knew i was standing there and they were all singing I think it was Defying Gravity. They were singing some song from Wicked. And they didn't know that there was a former green witch standing right behind them because they were living their best lives. And it was so, so fun to get to be a part of that. I really, really enjoyed BroadwayCon.
0: Tickets for BroadwayCon 2018 are now on sale and have never been less expensive. And worth every penny, you guys. You can find tickets and information like super reasonable hotel deals for that weekend at BroadwayCon.com. Theatre People is a product of Theatre Podcast Productions. To see all the podcasts we make, including our newest, which is a true crime comedy podcast called True Crime Obsessed, which I host with Jillian Pensilvalli of the Hamilcast, check us out at com. Today's episode was produced by Mike Jensen and me, Mike, edited this episode. Special thanks to today's sponsors, BroadwayCon 2018. You can check them out at BroadwayCon.com and my other podcast, Broadway Backstory. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and check out our brand new website, todaytix.com slash Broadway Backstory. Thanks also to our Patreon associate producers, Robbie Rosell, Cynthia Wallach, Ty Williams, and Carol Spellman. Thanks also to Steve Tipton, Eric Emsch, Keith Allen Herzog, Max Sadaka, Grace Fromm, Ellen Marsh, and the staff at Oswald's. We'll be back next week with, wait for it, Helena York, and I'm freaking out. Did you guys see American Psycho? I was obsessed. The way she said Patrick's name, Patronk, Patronk. I'm going to see if I can get her to say it and then make it my ringtone. I'm serious, you guys. Okay, bye!